Welcome to the debut podcast. This is Cedric Clark. And I'm Kojo Mensabonsu. First things first, here's a simplistic breakdown of the debut acronym. We're going to bring it from a perspective of being D, diverse individuals that have experienced A, athletics at a high level, with a guess what? Successful transition to B, the business world. That leads us to the fact that your potential is actually you, unlimited, if you're willing to put in the work. That's the D-A-B-U debut. Let's be clear. Our goal here is not to tell you how to think, how to feel, or how to act. But we are obligated to share the truth in correlation to our experiences, which has fueled our perspectives. So let's not waste time getting into this conversation, Cole. Let's get it. Let's do it. So we're back at it. Uh, part two is here uh, with Dr. Kayla Lopez. We're excited to jump in. Co and I are going to have some uh, pretty simplistic, honest and open questions that we feel will help facilitate dialogue and insights uh, for each of you all. So uh, we're going to jump right back in because we feel like this information, the timeliness of it, as well as the insight and details of the facts are going to be something that I think we all can look forward to and helping us as we navigate the water. So without further ado, let's jump right in. Can you explain to me COVID-19 just just in its simplest terms? Like what is COVID-19? What is COVID? Could you just give us a simplistic insight on, on COVID? So I will say, first of all, that COVID-19 falls into the category of coronaviruses. And so there are a number of different coronaviruses that exist, one of which causes a disease called COVID-19. So the specific virus that, that people, and we're talking about the virus that causes COVID-19, that virus is the severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2. So sometimes people will hear the term SARS-CoV-2. That is the virus that causes the disease COVID-19. And the reason that it's called COVID-19 is because it was first described in 2019. Okay, so there's because there's been this misnomer a little bit on you know we we didn't have 19 of these. <laughs> I gotta, no. I gotta. I'm just saying. I just heard it in. The, I literally just heard yes. it in the barber shop this week. Wow. There's 19 of these. So then I had one guy explain that the reason why we got the vaccine so quick because they've been working on this 19 times. I, she she just explained that. Well, but so, I didn't realize it was a disease. I thought it was a virus. Man, boom. I, like, woo. Yeah, the virus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus causes the disease that is known oh, as COVID-19. Interesting. Which frames a little more of the thought process on a vaccine attacking a disease versus when we kind mm. of look at it as a the flu, right? A virus like... You get like there's just this. This is really good because I'm even learning. So let me let me keep going on this, though. So, you know, you think of HIV and HIV mutates. We don't have a vaccine for that. Right. And, you know, I I get it. You know, Magic Johnson is he looks in better, better health than he ever has. And I know there's things that they have medication and things that they can take to monitor or or suppress it, mitigate it or mitigate it. But like, what's the correlation there? Because if like that's that's a, another problem too. If you haven't solved and gotten a vaccine for HIV, which has been around is, for thank you, like forever, forty years, forty years, plus, 40 years right? And then this is 2019, is what you're saying is when it arrived. Why? Yeah. Like, where's the? How did we come up with a vaccine so quick? I'm gonna take one moment and just say, for a long time, just from an HIV perspective, for a long time that disease was ignored. 
And the reason it was for for a long time, unlike COVID nineteen disease, HIV or AIDS, AIDS HIV is the is the virus, and AIDS is the disease, the full blown disease. It was ignored for a long time because the community that it impacted were LGBTQ individuals, and so that disease was kind of not discussed for a very long time, and so its impact was pretty, it it took a major impact and it took many, many, many years for people to even recognize it as a disease because once it started infecting the heterosexual community, then people were like, oh, now we need to talk about this. Another oppressed group, right? Like another outlier. Here we go again, right? Okay. So I wanted to bring it up just to say there's a little bit more background in the whole, how long did we ignore HIV versus COVID-19 disease? So that being said, the vaccine itself began to be worked on the type of vaccine that we use here in the United States. So these are uh, mRNA vaccines, two of them anyway, the Moderna vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine. Those are mRNA vaccines. And those are basically vaccines that are made with the protein of the, the virus to be able to, to have your antibodies, the things that attack things in your body, bad things in your body to have those recognize the proteins when you see it again, when you actually are infected with SARS-CoV-2. And so that is essentially what an mRNA vaccine is, I mean, in the simplest of terms. And so those types of vaccines have actually been worked on for the last 20 years in the United States. It is not new. mRNA vaccines are not new. The reason that it's the first time that we've actually had a distribution of mRNA vaccines, the reason that we have not used them more extensively in the past is that, as you have heard, it's a very delicate vaccination. It requires things to be kept at very, very cold temperatures. You have to have a very specific way that you dose it. And so the mRNA vaccines are effective and they have been proven to be safe. There are several countries in the world that already prior to us here used mRNA vaccines. We just did not use it until more recently because this opportunity arose for us to use this type of technology, this type of vaccine to distribute vaccinations against SARS-CoV-2 or against uh, to, to prevent the disease COVID-19. And so they are not new vaccines. They are not killed viruses. They are not live viruses. None of those things are true for these vaccines. They are not going to infect your brain. That is not, it's not, it's not an actual virus that is a part of that vaccine. They are proteins, pieces of the virus, the proteins. And, and so with, the, with just the pieces, you can't actually get infected with the virus itself because it's pieces that are a part of the of the proteins that are a part of the of the vaccine. Thank you so much for breaking that down for us. I think it's important for people to understand that because there's so much misinformation. Today, I was today years old when I found out that COVID-19 was a disease and it wasn't the same as coronavirus. Did you say today years old? I was today years old. <laughs> my, 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 me too. <laughs> Happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> for real. Like I've been, and I think I've called myself pretty educated in this, but even that, like, yeah, again, yeah. listeners, like we we're kind of blessing ourselves on this yeah, journey too. Yeah. And that's how we've been approaching things. I think, you know, one thing for me that I'm hearing is to, you know, the mRNA, yeah. it's almost like from a military standpoint, when they go out and do a, when they're training, mm-hmm. right? Okay. So what it's doing is it's putting yourself in a situation that 
put your body in the scenario where if this happened, this is how you react. Right, right. When right. I think some people think something's in it yes. that is fighting yeah. to say, well, if it can fight that, it can fight the coronavirus. Because some people do know that there is not part of the coronavirus, the disease in it. Yeah. But that I thought that was really good. It, yeah. It's it's manufacturing what your body is going to do and how it will attack. So when that shows up, it's like, I've seen this before. Yeah. Is that simplistically put? That's right. Okay. That's correct. Thank you for kind of, you know, going into just the details, you know, from disease. Like, it's just so much knowledge yeah. there. But how how in the United States, because the, the episode name, you know, the, the title of this is The Color of COVID. How in the United States did we begin to almost to define what the color of COVID was? And even maybe you can talk about who started that conversation? So it's interesting. First, I'm, I'm going to talk about uh, science and how science works, just as a very brief underline, because people have had some mistrust of science for a variety of different reasons in communities of color. They have very actually valid reasons to have mistrust of, of medical communities. But there was a noticing that unlike Europe, where the people that were described as having the disease were older white men, Older men were seen like they were like they were the ones who were impacted. Women weren't impacted. Children weren't impacted, according to the people in China and the people in Europe. Here, it became quickly noticed in New York. And Ibrahim Kendi, you know, the famous "How to Be an Anti-Racist" author, his wife is a pediatrician, and so he started speaking with other physicians, and they were noticing that there was a disproportionate number of individuals from communities of color who were presenting to emergency rooms and intensive care units that had this new disease, this kind of this COVID-19. So people were really concerned about this and he was really concerned about this, but no one else seemed to be concerned about this. So he wrote an op-ed in the Atlantic, the magazine and said, why are we not talking about who's getting COVID? And why don't we know more information about who's getting COVID? Because it seems like it's impacting some people in communities of color. So he ended up writing this article and then people started trying to get information from the CDC's website. There was no race and ethnicity information there. From the John Hopkins website, there was no race and ethnicity information there. From the COVID tracking project, there was no information there. Even the New York Times tracker had no race and ethnicity information. And so when they looked to see why this was, the New York Times reached out to the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, and said, where is this data? Why are you not you know, giving this data? They're like, well... People are busy, people are overwhelmed, and so they don't have the time to be entering this data. So the New York Times actually sued the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, under the Freedom of Information Act and said, we are suing you to get this data. Whatever small amount of data you have, please give it to us so we know who's being impacted. So July of 2020 was the first time a report came out in the New York Times demonstrating that the highest impact of not only cases of COVID-19, but also hospitalizations from COVID-19, ICU admissions from COVID-19, death from COVID-19, were all disproportionately impacting uh, communities of color. And that's when a lot more information started coming out. Uh, the first, actually, the first Department of Public Health to actually release any information before this whole New York Times thing blew up was the Illinois Department of Public Health. They were the first group that actually said, there are a disproportionate number of African-Americans that are being impacted by this disease. They were the first group to say that. And they were tracking information, unlike most other states, or at least publicly releasing it, unlike most other states. So if I understand this correctly, there was a Freedom of Information Request Act, which is a FOIA request, that led to the suit 
which then led to the Health Transparency Act. Is that correct? Is that what they coined it? Well, it, it led to the release of this data. It didn't lead to any more of a uh, health okay. policy thing, but for at least the release of this type of data regarding COVID-19 is what it, is what it led it. to. Got it. And that's when it was clear that it impacted yeah. Yeah. underserved communities, people yep. of color. And so that data then led to other data. So that, you know, like I said, it started with cases and then it moved to hospitalizations. They found that, you know, if you were Native American, if you were African American, if you were Latino, your rate of hospitalization was four times greater than Caucasian populations and Asian populations. So then they started looking at different groups. Is this true for children? Yes, indeed. Children were also getting disproportionately higher rates of COVID-19 if they were Black or Hispanic. And so the more data that came out, the more concerning this picture of uh, the COVID, the color of COVID was. Wow. So, so just for the listeners, that's where we're getting to this color of COVID. Right. Please, like what, what we're saying is this framework from Ibram Kendi kind of calling it out and then the New York Times suit happening in the Freedom of Information Act to release the information showed us there is actually a color of COVID. So... And you know what's really interesting about all of this, right, is when we speak about race and racism in America mm-hmm. and policy making, yes. policy writing, and the intersection of systemic racism and systemic inequities, how that attaches to everyday life. Yes. Law, education, mm-hmm. healthcare, red line, housing. Like all of this is intertwined into our culture. And so when people say that it's a systemic problem, all you need to do is look at a simple example like this, Mm -hmm. where underserved communities, black and brown people are marginalized and disproportionately impacted by a disease and a virus. The virus isn't isn't racist, right? The virus isn't, but the systems that the virus exists in, which is crazy. That is crazy. Even you saying that is just like, what? The systems that the people within this nation and the system that the virus lives in now seem to interact and exacerbate racism. When we talk about systemic racism in medicine, people, I think, don't exactly understand the term systemic racism. But as you stated, systemic racism has led to disparities or differential outcomes in what we what we term in medicine as the social determinants of health. So, so the social determinants of health are things that impact your health beyond you going to the doctor's office. So social determinants of health include the environment that you live in. Do you live in a safe environment that allows you to exercise? Or, or is it are you can you not go outside because it's unsafe for you to do so? Is the air quality poor? Does that make your disease likelihood worse? Are you able to access healthcare? Is the quality of the healthcare in your neighborhood or in your community high? Are you able to access healthy food? Because do you live in an area where you can access fruits and vegetables, or do you live in a food desert, which tend to disproportionately impact communities of color? Are you able to have education? If you're able to be in an educated community, the likelihood that you'll be able to have access to better care is higher. So all of these things that we call the social determinants of health are the things that impact your ability to do well from a health perspective beyond the doctor's office. And it turns out that they actually matter more, almost more than your ability to go to see a doctor because that's a one-off. You know, you want to see a doctor as a one-off. And so there's a really great quote that says, 
your zip code matters more than your genetic code. So where you live impacts your health more than your actual genetics. And that's an important thing. And that's been shown over and over in Houston, for example. And actually, actually I'll take Chicago because that's where I'm from. The life expectancy differences because of the social determinants of health, because of systemic inequities and systemic racism that have existed that created these systems, the life expectancy difference between the North side, which is more Caucasian, globally speaking, and the South side and the West side, which is more Latino and Black, globally speaking, is 30, upwards of 30 years. So your life expectancy difference based solely on where you live it can be as high as 30 years. It's the highest life expectancy gap in the nation is in Chicago. Listeners, this is from a doc. <laughs> like, and we gave y'all like, this is science. Like I, to me, it, it breeds. It's so crazy how we've gotten to season two yeah. and how, how this, you know, I, I thank the Lord for just his hand in this because this is weaving this episode. Yeah. Yes. Dr. Kayla Lopez is weaving everything that we've talked to together. Yeah. In almost one, in, you know, just in this last 30 10 years. Minutes. Yes, difference. Thank you so much for this education and this. And typically what ends up happening is there are a lot of people in denial about this information. And it makes it difficult to have a candid, transparent conversation is because there is some, the idea that like America is a great country. We had a black president. Yeah, yeah, right. Man. Like yeah. they're a black physician. You're a Latina physician. Like You're good. You right. should. Why should you even be jumping into public health? Right. Like right. I mean, you made it. You're all right. Like <laughs> you're a two percenter. Yeah, and so it's interesting. I, I think about this, and it's so clear that there are disparities which are led by race. Yes. Which means that there's racism here. Yes. Systemic. It doesn't mean you as an individual American are racist. The systems have been set up to delineate mm. groups of people from the majority of yes. people, right? Yes. You know what I love about you, Kayla, is... Here we go. Let's you, get it. <laughs> you, you are not shy about calling stuff out when you see it. And... Your Twitter handle. Mm, I'm them up for you right now. <laughs> we talk about it. You can follow her. She's Dr. Kayla Lopez, right? Follow her on Twitter and see the smoke. She, I said she always comes with smoke. And she yes. says, no, the smoke comes, comes from me. <laughs> hey, so I do want to highlight a couple oh, um, tweets by you in order to preface what, why you tweeted these. Um, can you just share? what the Journal of American um, Medical Association is and AMA and the history behind that. And yeah. then I'll go into the yeah. tweets if that's yeah. okay with you. So the American Medical Association was founded in 1847 and it was founded organization for physicians, a physician organization to help have advocacy for doctors and things like this. You were not allowed to be a part of the American Medi Medical Association if you were African-American. You are not allowed. And so the history of the American Medical Association is born out of a lot of uh, racist practices. So as a result, African-American physicians made their own organization, the National Medical Association, in 1895 because they were not allowed to be a part of the American Medical Association. Once that happened, when other laws came to be that you cannot discriminate against, you know, based on, the, on how, what someone looks like, et cetera, et cetera, then the American Medical Association came up with deals with hospitals 
that said that you cannot work at that hospital unless you were a member of the American Medical Association, which is clever because you could not be a member of the medical association if you were black. And so there was a lot of background of the, of the American Medical Association that over time, they've had to say, we are sorry, that was wrong, and have a lot of apologies for their initial kind of the roots of the practices that they had. So the Journal of the American Medical Association is the journal that's associated with the, with the AMA as, a, as an entity. It's a very highly regarded journal, and a lot of important medical data is published there. And they recently published a podcast talking about structural racism. So the podcast was, the, the title was, Physicians Aren't Racist, So How Can Structural Racism Exist? Oh. That was the premise oh. of the, of the, the podcast. That's the smoke yeah, that yeah. finds her. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you hear it. You yeah. guys got to see yeah. it. When that podcast came out, it was basically two physicians uh, who were not physicians that were underrepresented speaking about the fact that there are laws against racism and so it no longer exists. And so as a result of this, what we really need to be focusing on is people who have lower socioeconomic status. That is the reason that there are differential outcomes is because people are more poor. That's the problem. So of course, this blew up on Twitter and I was part of the, the group that said, this is insane. I cannot believe that this was published. And of course, the AMA said, oh, my word, I don't know what's happening. Oops, just kidding. Never mind. And they ended up retracting the podcast. Then they had a subsequent podcast to try to rectify that initial podcast to say, we were wrong. I don't know how that got published, actually, or how they got you know broadcast. The American Medical Association does not believe that. And then they had people on that, that refuted that claim about uh, systemic inequities or racism no longer being exist, no longer existing. And then since then, the top editor of the Journal of American Association has been put on leave because of this podcast being published. And so it's not, you know, when we talk about representation, why, why is it that it matters that I am, you know, in a, trying to have a bigger impact in a policy space, you know, in a public health space? Why am I trying to dispel myths for my, for the, you know, communities of color? Why does that all that matter? Because it matters because people are saying things like this still things that are not factual still. And we need to bring to light the truth of what is happening in America today as it pertains to academic medicine, as it pertains to access to care, as it pertains to communities of color, mistrust, why that exists, why mistrust exists. There's a huge long history of experimentation on communities of color. It matters to have people represented at these high level of leadership in academic medicine in leadership in, in health policy, in leadership in journals, and what is being published, and what is being podcasted as it pertains to academic medicine, it matters because I can guarantee that if someone in the room had been someone of color and heard this, they would have said, that is the craziest thing I've ever heard. You cannot publish that. Wow. And just for the listeners, like, don't get it twisted. You know, Dr. Kayla Lopez's tweet has the, on both ends of this, it has the, um, I, I call them the police lights. The sirens. It's got the siren <laughs> lights. Right here in all exclamation points. And you can re you go back to what she was saying. That's why representation matters, right? At all levels. Yeah. And you went into that. I, I'm so grateful for your voice too. And I, I think yeah. your voice also comes from your experience. And thank goodness, you know, Joan Reed, right? And, and Reed Scholar, like that framework of you getting that at the perfect time makes it so relevant for you to feel compelled to be in this space. 
And then for us to give this to the listeners, it's amazing. Yes. Well, and then let's not forget Mr. and Mrs. Lopez. Yes. That's where it started. Facts. Right. Thank like you. There was an that's intentionality. Good. That's great. Whether you're aware of it or not, the fact that that's they good. spoke their native language to you yep. and felt strongly about their culture. There's something, mm. there's power in that. Yeah. And that's not lost on me when I hear people speak about that in their life experience. It's also amazing that as a female, my academic achievement was never dissuaded because I was a girl. So in our family, there was no distinction between the fact that I was a girl and my brother's a boy. It was, you are both going to be educated, the end. That's generational Lopez right that there, is, to your point. That is, that is. There's no part of that in the home. That's amazing. That, wow. that is awesome. Thank you so much, Kayla. But we are going to get into <laughs> the thick of it here, right? You literally just have lined out for us Ooh. the disparities in healthcare. Yep. The disparities in how patients are treated. Yeah. Right. How physicians were recognized yeah. and how phys- physicians were treated. Yes. How data is held on to and mm. not shared. Pub- like you literally have to sue the government for that. The New York Times. Right. <laughs> you had to put it out. So wow. all of that being said, Dr. Lopez, what is your message to patients? Right. Mm. And so we are going to get into what we believe, what we hear in the barbershops. Absolutely. Right? At the gym. Yep. In, in our the, communities. In the break room at work. This thing, COVID, it's a plan. What what is a it's a pandemic. I've seen Ooh, that. Yes, I heard that. Plandemic? It's a pandemic, right? Yes. And, and and Dr. Fauci is is misrepresenting information. And the CDC is doing three card Monty with the information, right? Right. 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 Like, so you've just lined out why we shouldn't trust information we see, right? True. But there's a but there. And we're going to go into a couple areas and we want your response to why we should listen to physicians now. We think about those who have been disenfranchised and what their experience has been. And we'll start, we'll, we'll focus on Latinos and Blacks for now, Blacks for now. right? Yeah. Who are the most impacted by this. Why should we trust what they say? Yeah. I'm going to rectify one statement here. The, the most impacted group are Native Americans. Ooh, thank you for that. Wow. Th- and they we, are the most impacted, negatively impacted group from COVID-19. Thank wow. you. And I feel for so much, and we spoke about this in episode one, right? Because there is a concept, there's a perception. We, we did. Yeah. There's a perception that the biggest- Offense and sin. We call it. The biggest sin was, America committed was, was slavery. slavery. And you, What did you say though? I, I think the original sin was what the- America wasn't America yet, right? But what happened to Native Native Americans? Yes. And they're often forgotten. Mm, That's so good. And left as an afterthought. But thank you for bringing that up. And the underreporting there. Like, it's actually probably worse. I think, even with the data, I know they get it. But, like, there's a lot of underreporting when you think about if you understand kind of what transpires and how they get the information for the reservations to the national public, right? Like, or, you know, even to those that, that take the data. So, yeah, thank you for saying that, Kate. Yes, no, that that's good. So, why, why should we trust? Taking into consideration the Tuskegee experiment. Yes. Taking into a number of other examples, but why, why should we trust what physicians say? Yep. The good news is that as time has gone on, there's been a lot more transparency in the data that we are receiving, in the uh, outspokenness um, of of the data that we are not receiving, 
And in terms of what's really occurring at multiple levels, not only on the ground here, but also at, at the highest level of policy in, in the federal government. So I'll start off by saying from a science in general. So I think people have to understand, people will say things like, oh, they used to tell us this and now they lied and now it's this. I hear that a lot. They used to tell us that you had to wash all of your plastic bags from your groceries and now they're saying you don't have to do it anymore. So they're lying. Like it was a lie that they said in the first place. The reality is that this is how science works. Science works by gathering data and getting information and then gathering more data and getting more information. And that is an evolutionary process. That is a process that changes over time. So whereas we used to think, for example, that children did not get sick from COVID, we learned that children do get sick from COVID, but we only learned that because we collected data and we did uh, tests and observations and, and looked at outcomes. So when we talk about changes in science, changes in practice, changes in mask wearing, not mask wearing, get the vaccine or there is no vaccine. When we talk about these changes, it's because science evolves and it's supposed to. It is natural for science to evolve over time. And so that's a very, very important key part that I wanted to bring up. The person who actually, one of the main people who actually came up with the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, actually it was Moderna to help the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, was Kizmekia Corbett. She is a black scientist and she made it a point to say, I am a black scientist creating a, a vaccine to combat the COVID-19 disease. And I don't want people to think that, that this is a conspiracy against communities of color to try to experiment on them any longer. It was actually a goal of hers to be involved so that there would be no perception of experimentation like it used to be back you know, when people, when people did this in a m- much more unethical and large fashion. There has been data that has shown, m- lots of data that has shown what is the impact of the COVID vaccine? What is the safety of the COVID vaccine? What is the safety on elderly patients, on pregnant women, on children, or teenagers, I should say? We're, we're doing tests on children right now. What is the impact on women versus men, on young teens, young, young adults versus people who are 80? So there's been lots of data that has looked at the safety profile of the vaccination, and there is no data to suggest that the vaccine is not safe. There is no data to suggest that it causes infertility. There is no data to suggest that it causes brain damage. There is no data to suggest that it, that it gives you the virus. And whatever other misinformation is out there, there's a lot of misinformation out there. Currently, the misinformation that we're trying to combat is people get the first dose of the vaccine and are afraid of getting the second one because they're told, oh, the second one is where they get you. The second one is the one where where you get knocked down or you get killed or whatever other misinformation is out there. But the vaccine itself requires, for Pfizer, Moderna, requires two doses to to work well. And so- you might get more sick from getting the second vaccine. You might, the majority of people actually don't. You might feel achy, get a fever, but that's the body doing its job saying, hey, wait a minute, I saw this already. I saw this protein already, and now I'm going to attack it. So you have one bad day and you're done. As opposed to getting the COVID, getting the, the disease and ending up in the ICU because you have additional issues like diabetes, hypertension, obesity. If you have any of those diabetes, hypertension, obesity, asthma, your likelihood of being hospitalized and having a poor outcome goes up. If you have two of those, it goes up even more. If you have three of those, it goes up even more. And so 
understanding that the systemic inequities have really driven people to have those poor health outcomes, diabetes, obesity, et cetera. And then understanding that those outcomes make you getting COVID much more dangerous because it makes it more likely for you to be hospitalized and, and die from COVID. Understanding how all of those pieces fit together, we have to understand that as communities of color, we are at high risk for having bad outcomes. And we have to do what we can to mitigate these outcomes because our communities are being decimated. They're being wiped out because of COVID-19, because people have so many pre-existing conditions because of these long-standing systemic inequities. So we have to do what we can to try to mitigate or to try to offset this long-standing history of systemic racism by getting things like the COVID vaccine. What I want to jump into also, and you know, I also want to, before we jumped into that, but even you think of Native American spirituality, think of Latinx or Blacks, kind of the religious wrapping this around religion. Like I've, I've also heard my listeners probably have said that, hey, you know what? The, lo- the Lord didn't tell me I need to get that shot. You know, like part of I was raised in church. There's kind of this journey of going on this to say like, you know, well, Yes, the man has created this, but is this really something that's for me and kind of how the religion plays into that? I mean, have you had have you had any of those experiences yourself, like even in your home? But, you know, I've heard that from some people that I know. It's like, the, you know, I, the Lord, I'm not feeling the Lord's not telling me, or, you know, I've been told that I don't feel that I need to do it. Like that's that's something that's real. And I think that's part of people of color in their religious backgrounds as well. I'm a Christian and as a Christian physician. When people say things like, oh, I don't need this. I I hear this very much, very often from my patients. And I actually hear it from all members of my family. I heard it yesterday from a member of my family that I don't need to take the vaccine because God's got my back. God will take care of me. So we have to understand that God places people in positions to help other people. So if you are a physician of color and your goal is to help communities of color and you are informing, giving true information, giving correct information, that is God placing you there to inform other individuals. That is God giving, using science to inform communities, to improve outcomes for communities through you, someone who's working within communities of color to try to improve outcomes for communities of color. So God works in different ways. He works through science. He works through people. And so you have to understand that these things come together and you have to look and recognize that God works in different ways, not just he will, he will save me. He works through people and information and science and going forward. He works through all of those ways as well. And so making the assumption that God will save me actually discredits God in the way that God works. It doesn't give him the credit that he deserves in how he's working through people, through science, through communities, et cetera. I got to use a quick par- yeah, I got to use a quick parable on this because I've heard something similar to that. So, you know, there's a flood happening, floods up to the door and the person, the big person in the truck comes to get them. They're like, no, nope, you know, I don't I, I'm good. So then they're you know, they're on the roof. So I'll make it really quick. They're on the roof and the helicopter comes to get them. And they're like, nope, I'm good. So unfortunately, the flood takes them away. So they get up to get up to heaven, Kayla and and. Say, Lord, like, you know, I, I was waiting on you. Like, you know, you were supposed to help me. And he, Send the, the signal. The Lord said, who you think sent the big Mack truck? And then who <laughs> else do you think sent the helicopter? I mean, as plain as it can be, I, I love how you articulated that. And, you know, Kojo and I have professed 
you know, our belief as Christians as well. And I do believe God is in everything. He's in everything. I love how you said that he's in science. And I think there, you know, sometimes there's people think that there's contradictions in that. I don't, I don't believe that. I love how you said I am a Christian doctor, Mm. you know, as well. Like, Oh no, that was really good. I, I have, was, I have no was. further questions. No, me, me, me neither. <laughs> uh, but I do want to provide an opportunity for Dr. Lopez to surmise or to provide some closing comments before we close out this wonderful episode. Yeah. Anything you want to share with the listeners and your insights on COVID nineteen or health disparities or just this session today? Well, first, I'd like to say again, thank you for this opportunity. It's such a joy to talk to you guys. It's so much better than talking to my medical colleagues. It's so much more fun. But I wanted to, to speak to you know any young person that's listening that thinks that they can't make it to higher education, that they think that they can't make it to graduate school or medical school or law school or whatever kind of school that that they allow are allowing other people to define who they can and can't be. I just wanted to state that's not true. You define who you are and are not going to be. And I think that don't let people define you and don't let people ex- ex- low expectations of you define you. You set your own expectations. The thing I'd like to make a comment about in terms of COVID is systemic inequities have been so long standing that they are not going away anytime soon. They have been present for a very long time. There's a long-standing history of why this came to be. And COVID-19 is not going away anytime soon either. There is a large number of individuals who still don't believe it's real, who don't believe that you can get it, who don't believe that you have a bad outcome. So we as communities of color have to understand that the best protection that we have, that the best science that we have was used to make the COVID vaccines in order to help mitigate these bad outcomes. These bad outcomes are disproportionately impacting our communities. They are killing off our communities. And so we need to actively say, I will not allow this virus to destroy my community because of longstanding histories of racism that have impacted my health. I will not allow it to happen. And I will take the vaccine because I know that it is safe. It was created by, in part by African-American scientists it is safe. It is no one that's trying to inject or experiment on me. It is a safe and effective way to have a, a less bad outcome from COVID. If you get the vaccine, does it mean you, can, you, know, you can't get COVID? No, you can get COVID, but it means that the outcome of getting COVID, the outcome, meaning hospitalization, death, et cetera, is much better. Ah. Dr. Lopez, <laughs> I'm getting emotional over here just listening yeah, to this. That was Awesome. Thank you so much. Sad. What? Oh no. There's just there's so many nuggets. And I, you know, I, I want to frame it up to where she ended. No matter where you are on this belief journey, just know there's a color to COVID. And the color to COVID is people of color, people that look like us three, you know, having this conversation. We also talked about Native Americans being affected actually at the highest rate. And, you know, I, I just loved how Dr. Kayla Lopez talked about you know what? Like, unfortunately, the groundwater is what I call it. That is created. This frame is the framers created the policies and the policies, unfortunately, create, you know, perpetuated this dynamic that affects us, affects people of color more. Being responsible is, is if that's the chance to take, 
to be able to have life. And, and for me, you know, having four kids, like to be able to support them more, I think I'm going to choose life, even if there's hard yeah. components of that with the side effects of what this, the, the vaccine is. And then as you even explain what mRNA is, you know, that creates an assimilation, there's, I just hope there was enough data for some of our listeners and then for you to share with some other people, you know, taking an educated chance on this will save your life in my opinion. And I, I'm just grateful for that. I mean, there's other nuggets that, you know, I, I do want to call out to, she talked about sponsorship. So on her early journey of mm-hmm. you tell me I couldn't like what I love Kayla that you're doing is like, she's on the journey now. Cause she had compelled to say, okay, I learned on what I want to do, but I love to teach. And then it framed into sponsorship and sponsorship versus mentorship over, over me- mentorship. And it's critical for minorities. I, yeah. I think cause we're already unrepresented. I mean, Dr. Lopez here is a two percenter and, you know, and, you know, we hope those numbers grow. But that only happens if you listen to what she said in the very beginning, that if someone tells you you don't think you have a shot, you can go. And then, you know, one that the last one I want to say is your zip code matters more than your genetic code. That one that one hit me in the heart. Yes, because this actually talks again to the policies and the framing of the systemic challenge that we've been unfortunately dealt in the world that, you know, we're in now. And I. That one I'm going to take with me for a while because yeah. there is data around where you live and how you can be inordinately impacted because you don't have access and you haven't had access. Yes. Those are nuggets for me, Co. And I, I could, we could go on and on with we this. Could. This we hands could. down might be my favorite episode because yeah. it has brought everything we've done together. It has. It has. And, and you know, even a part that we didn't discuss, Kayla, and I think it's important to recognize this. You are a fair-skinned Latina. Yes. And you have leveraged your proximity to whiteness, your white-adjacent presenting self privilege to to be able to support the community that falls within your realm but doesn't look like you. That's good. And I think that's imperative because typically, from my experience, what happens with physicians or anyone – Anyone who is represents or is white adjacent, uh-huh. they have the predilection to move away from the community which they should represent or do represent. Agreed. Right. Agreed. And yes. so what you've done is you chose to use what is an ability, right? It's an advantage that yes. you have to use a, to be a voice for those who don't, who can't use their own voice. Well, now I now I have to say one more thing. Please. Yeah, you do. Go ahead. Actually, two. I promise it's just two. One is I have to address the elephant in the room. That's the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. Yeah. Yes. I just I just had to address it for one second. So people, there's been a lot of media frenzy regarding the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. It's a one-time vaccine. It is not an mRNA vaccine. It's a different kind of vaccine that is more traditional which is why it's easier, why it's, you can get it in one dose and why it, you don't have to freeze it and things like how you have to do with the mRNA vaccines. But the uproar of people having bad outcomes from the Johnson & Johnson, you know, the, the Federal Drug Administration, the FDA takes any side effects very seriously. I'd like to point out that any drug has potential side effects. Any drug, Tylenol, Motrin, Advil, whatever, they all have the potential for side effects and bad outcomes. And those are extremely rare, as is a bad outcome, like a blood clot, for example, from the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. And so while that has been hyped in the media, the reality is that it's less than one in a million 
that have gotten a blood clot from the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Whereas if you are a woman, less than one in a million, if you are a woman who is on birth control, your likelihood of having a clot from birth control is one in 3,000. Okay. And people are still taking birth control all over the place. And so my point is it's not as dangerous as, as it's being made out to be. And it is actually quite safe. And it would not be in distribution if it was not a safe vaccine. She took my part. That's facts. Yep, so she facts. said less one in a million for Johnson and Johnson, one in three thousand for birth control. That's I right. Just, yeah, and birth you. control is much more, much, much more used, right? So that's the first. The second thing is to your point, Kojo, about proximity to whiteness. That's a very good point. So recently I had, I'm married to a Caucasian man and he has heard my journey. He has been on me with a lot of my journey since I was a chief resident and my kind of evolution in, as it pertained to public health, health disparities, being on a bigger platform for research and health inequities and things like this. So he has heard a lot of, about it and he has learned a lot. So he works in academia. He's a scientist and he started becoming more vocal about practices. Why aren't we considering this applicant? Well, their scores aren't as good. Well, why are their scores not as good? What did they have to go through to get to this point compared to this other candidate? So he started advocating on behalf of applicants of color. He started advocating on behalf of journal articles and who's being published and all this kind of stuff. He started doing this in his talks. He started doing this in his classes as he was teaching. And so, so much so that when he, he was recently approached to lead the diversity initiative at the academic institution that he works in. So I will tell you that my initial reaction was, say what now? <laughs> Where'd you get my that initial, <laughs> My initial reaction was what? Because I was like, how can that be? You're a Caucasian man. But then I took a step back and I said, but isn't that the point though? Exactly. Isn't that the it point is. is to get the majority to advocate on behalf of the minority for improved policies, for improved representation, for improved outcomes. And it was a real watershed moment for me to check myself, first mm. of all, <laughs> in terms of like, you can't be the diversity guy. You're a white guy. Like I had to check myself and realize that, that, that it was actually an, an adoption of the goal, which is to have the majority advocate on behalf of minority communities. So that's my own kind of nugget personal journey at the end here because I just I had to bring that up because it's important. It has been an absolute honor and we want to thank you so much for participating in this project we call D-Debut. This was an excellent, excellent session and I want to thank you so much for just being as candid and as open and as insightful as you have been. This was awesome. Sam. Yeah, man. Yeah, and I... Cole, I, I want to give, you know, because I've met you, Dr. Kayla Lopez, through Kojo, and just the masterful, in my opinion, Cole, thought to put this together as we've been on this journey. But like, I got to give you credit, man, like the framework of this was mined from you in this. But then as we pulled Kayla into this, like this is, again, masterful. This is awesome. So Thank I just I, we're so grateful awesome. for you. And for the listeners, this is going to be the start, because hopefully what happens with this momentum is we continue on this journey of finding these nuggets and pulling this whole thing together. So then you can begin to actually move in this world that we have yeah, that has yeah. been challenged to be a part of the change. Yeah. Do what Kayla's doing. Absolutely. Policy change. Go go do something that someone's telling you not to. Love so this. this is awesome. Kayla, yeah. it's been a pleasure. Rick, yeah, man. Get, a thing, get man. it out, man. Well Thank done. you all. Thank you. Talk both. to y'all later. Take care. Thank you.